I would like to introduce you tonight's speaker, a good friend of mine, Mr. Joey Price. I'll let everybody, let everyone take their seats. And if you hear my heart pounding through the microphone, don't worry, it's not like an earthquake or anything. Um, <clears throat> my name's Joey Price, I'm an alcoholic. Um, what it was like. What it was like for me growing up uh, as a child was anxiety-ridden. I was uncomfortable all the time. My family felt like aliens to me. Uh, if I go back, we were heavy church growers from Port Neches, Texas. If I ask you guys to raise your hand because you knew where that was, no one would. Okay, it's literally the armpit of the United States. It's in uh, a bayou area in Texas, literally on the hill of Louisiana. Uh, I, I know you guys can point that out because literally it looks like the armpit of the United States. Um, it was also stinky. Uh, it was literally. Um, it has the most refineries per square mile in that area. Um, and there's literally a refinery on every corner. Uh, I played football in, in uh, high school at Port Neches, and uh, it backed up to a refinery. You literally saw the smog coming off. So I'd really like to blame all my ailments on uh, the pollution, but uh, that's actually not the case, okay? I don't have a hand growing out of my head. I don't have any uh, ailments from that. My ailment was... Uh, narcissistic, self-centered lifestyle that I lived prior to that. Uh, the world revolved around me. And you know, to tell you the truth, I was okay with that. I really was um, at that time, especially as a child. Uh, but I can start with uh, church. We went to church three times a week. Um, became a huge part of my childhood. At the same time, that house that you'd walk into and see two parents with three children sitting in the same outfit in front of them when you walk into the door, like typically in the South, in a portrait, beautiful for you to see, was actually not so pretty. Um, and you know, I'm going to share some things tonight that I'm okay with sharing. Um, one of those things is on the way to church on Wednesdays and Thursdays, my mentally health brother would actually sex sexually abuse me on the way. Uh, my parents had no idea, but like I said, everything seemed fine on the outside. We were the perfect family. My, my father was a veterinarian and my mother was the housewife that took care of us, but uh, my brother slowly was unwinding. Slowly but surely kept unwinding throughout my entire life. Uh, now this is not an excuse for my alcoholism. This is just playing a part in who I am as a person. Um, I slowly but surely um, became you know, pulled away from my family. I started to isolate more. I was the type of guy who played uh, GoldenEye, uh, the, you know, the Nintendo 64 game, and played the same level, the facility, over and over again, and killed the same guys over and over again. Uh, if anyone wondered where I was, I was upstairs playing video games. I was also the guy who felt extreme guilt towards sin, uh, which would, is what they call it in how I was raised. Uh, I was, when I was little, I was running around, and of course the coolest kid in Texas, the guy who can run the fastest, right? 
And so we ran a mile around the back, around the, pretty much in a circle around each refinery. Uh, but we ran a circle in the back of, of our school and they had mapped out a mile. Um, in that mile, I had won that race up until third grade when Chase Richards, that little turd, moved to my hometown. <laughs> and he took me down that day. And I'll never forget it because of the type of mindset I had. I jumped on some monkey bars, said every cuss word that I knew at that time, got off immediately, started crying, and repented. That's the type of person that I was as a child. I mean, the type of anxious and discomfort that I, and fear that I had in my life was almost unbearable at a, at a young age. Slowly but surely, as I got into high school, started to realize that the girls like people who played sports. So uh, that was important to me, because like I said, the world revolved around me. I wanted everyone to like and love me. Uh, I found out also that in Southeast Texas, uh, there are about 10,000 people that go to high school football games. So football became really important for me to learn how to play. It really did. Uh, I started playing football, and uh, I started playing soccer as well. Um, Sports were a huge, huge deal for me. It actually, I, uh, my brother who recently called me was telling me that uh, he's pretty sure his son is an alcoholic and an addict. He's 14 years old. And I was like, you know, it's, I wish you could take him to a meeting immediately so he starts working the steps and learning how to do this. But, you know, it might be smart to infuse him into sports as well because what it did was it pushed me away from that area that, was attracting me, and that area was the outsiders, the people that literally gave me probably what I wanted, and I had no idea what that was yet, obviously, because I hadn't taken a drug, but um, what it was was sports was a way to feed my ego. Uh, if I woke up in the morning in high school because I ca my team became really good, we went to state, I would run out the door to the newspaper to make sure that my name was in the newspaper. It was extremely important to me to feel that. I didn't feel it at home. I didn't feel it anywhere. But I wanted to just feed my ego. I wanted to feed the self-centered individual. I then, my senior year, decided that it was more important to, uh, it, after games, I didn't want to go to the parties yet, but it was really important for me to go to my girlfriend's house because I could maybe get some type of, uh, you know, sexual encounter as a young adult, which was extremely important to me at that time. And I assume that it was important for many people almost going through puberty. But um, I, I then was asked to go to a party once we got really, really, really good, and I started to get popular. Uh, this was my junior year in high school. I went to that party and I grabbed that beer and I cracked it open and this stuff that was going on in the back of my head fell to the floor like a waterfall. And I thought to myself, my God, I can live like this. Because I could not. There's no possible way that I could continue living with that going on in the back of my head. All the guilt, fear, anxiety, everything that I needed to cope with literally just dissolved the moment I cracked that beer open. It was, it was religious. That's what it was. So I then looked forward to Friday night. 
Um, I would get this. I don't know for those who did drugs like I did. I assume we all did. But for those who did, I, I would get this rumble and excitement. I could feel it on my body, almost physically shaking. Not for my football game. Not for amazing things that were happening, but for Friday night. After the game. Not the touchdown I scored, not the field goal I kicked, but afterwards, on the way to the party, I would literally feel like I was almost convulsing out of excitement. Like I have no idea what tonight's going to bring. And let me tell you what it brought. It brought a lot of blackouts. I had no idea where I was the next morning. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I really didn't. But at the same time, uh, I tr I, my, my dad got a hold of me, and he, he cut me out. He saw me a few times, and he, he pulled me away from that and was like, this is serious. You're getting scholarship offers. Um, you need to, like, I, I'll, you know, go hang out with your girlfriend Friday night. Stop that. So like I said, for me to continue that egotistical mindset, but at that point, I would find ways to drink my mom's wine when I got home from my girlfriend's house at night. I still found a way. But I kind of, like I said, it, it held it back, that that the sports mindset me pushing towards that. Um, I got a scholarship offer. I went to a place, a little small school in Texas called Sam Houston State University. Uh, but I had played four positions in high school and in, in college. I was a kicker, okay? It's always funny. Whenever I, I, in work, when people walk up to me, they're like, I heard you played football in high school, uh, uh, college. And I'm like, yeah, I did football in college. And they're like, oh, cool. And I always dread that second that second question. It's like, what position did you play? And I'm just like, God, you had to ask that. Uh, and look, bottom line is they called me Ray Finkel in, uh, in, uh, in college. They did. But... But this is all leading uh, to a certain point. And so my sophomore year, joined a fraternity, my sophomore year in uh, college, um, my roommate tore his knee. And I had another roommate who was in my fraternity. Because like I said, the, when, I went to, when I went to college, I didn't have that satisfaction. The ego wasn't being fed. I needed to move into the, to the Greek life because I could satisfy that need to be liked and loved and popular and all these things on the outside. And I started drinking heavily. In fact, I mean, one story I'll tell, and I'll try not to romanticize, but I, uh, I went out for a night in uh, Beaumont, Texas, and I drank a whole lot, blacked out again. And it was the day before Christmas, and my mom wakes me up like she did every single year on Christmas, walks up to me, uh, walks into my bedroom, barges the door open. I have no idea how I got there. And she's like, Joey, your truck's on, the door's open outside, and it looks like you took a shit on our, on our driveway. <laughs> and then so I looked at her. No, really. So I looked at her, and I was like, there's no way. And then I looked down. I had no pants on. It happened, okay? It happened. All right? I know it did. So let me tell you, those, those were the days and not the days, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I then, like I said, sophomore year, drinking was heavy. I, sophomore year, I, I'm, I'm sitting there, and a guy looks at me, and he's like, 
let's play Scrabble. And, I mean, you know, I'm a kicker. I'm still on the football team, guys. Scrabble is not something cool and fun to play, right? Uh, so I then uh, look at him and I say, have you lost your mind? I won't know how to spell anything. And he's like, well, um, play it with this. John's not using his Vicodin. Take one of these. And I was like, I've taken that before. You know, like when I hurt myself, I, you know, I just go to sleep. And he's like, no, no, no. Take it when you don't have any pain. And I took it. And that feeling that I got with alcohol the first time, this was like, I mean, all I can do is just make a noise. It was, oh. Everything. I mean, there is a, there's scenes in movies where people are like whipped through the universe back down to earth. That's exactly what happened to me at that moment. It was the, it was the rap. It was literally the end of everything. It was the center of my universe. Took that, became, I, I started using consistently, fizzled out of the football team, obviously. Finally, somehow, I got a marketing uh, bachelor's in marketing and graduated, got a job at J.P. Morgan, but at that time, by that time, I was taking uh, about 36 Vicodin a day. Uh, and to tell you the truth, at this time, which I know this is out of all respect for alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I will talk about uh, drugs here and there, um, but I didn't want to do anything else. That's the type of drug addict I was. When someone had a joint, someone had cocaine, someone had alcohol, I did not want it to mess with the way I was feeling because it made me feel so good. I would throw up four or five times a day. Let me tell you, my, my boss at J.P. Morgan, and then I worked at Bank of New York after that, both of those, both of those jobs, my, both my bosses were like, golly, that guy's got huge stomach problems. And I played them really well, too, okay? I played it up really well. I was constantly telling them how I was sick, and so I get off work a lot too. Uh, but at the same time, I'd be throwing up at my desk. Um, so I got—I had girlfriends throughout my entire time using, and um, my girlfriends. One of my girlfriends was not an alcoholic. Um, I think all of them weren't, but um, this one was definitely not. And she found some pills and was like, "You need to go to, uh, you need to go to Memorial Hermann." go to treatment, blah, blah, blah. So I went to an AA meeting instead, of course, and um, uh, it was actually an NA meeting. Uh, and I went to an NA meeting, and um, and she said, uh, and there was a woman in there, and she said, every time I look at my kids, um, I want to I do cocaine. And there were a million shares in there, but for those of you who are new, I, I ask you to listen to every share. Because I didn't that day. The moment that woman said something that did not correlate with my life, I latched onto that and wrote Alcoholics Anonymous off for 10 years. Well, actually, five years, sorry. I exaggerated. Which, if you come to know me, I do a lot. But um, I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I latched onto that. And, you know, now I want to tell that woman, you know, a stubbed toe makes me want to use Vicodin uh, at one time in my life. Anything did. So um, I feel bad saying it, but I latched onto that and it pushed me out of the rooms for many years. 
and I used it as an excuse. And the perils that I went through from that point on um, were kind of, it, I, now that I think about it, that may be like a, a, a large part of what I did to screw up. Because um, if I would have accepted that and listened, started these steps with a sponsor and lived in these rooms, I don't know what would have happened. But that's my typical thinking. I like to go back and replay things like probably we all like to do. So um, bottom line, uh, I said no, pretty much. Uh, walked out of there, uh, rode off Vicodin. I was like, man, I don't need that. I can just drink. So then uh, let's just say I crapped on a few more driveways. Um, <laughs> I was also the guy that uh, I was also the guy that wore. And for those who don't know who it is, it's the, know what this is. Good. Uh, I wore a seersucker suit every now and then to work. And let's just say one night I went out, took some, uh, drank a whole lot, did my typical blackout, and I came to on ecstasy at 8 a.m. on some guy I didn't know's couch, and I had a hole in the side of my seersucker suit. And I was supposed to be at work in 30 minutes. And let me just tell you, I had no more vacation days left, okay? <laughs> so I make it in, and they're like, you can't come in here like this. You've got to go home. But I was on ecstasy, so I was like, sure, whatever. You're awesome. Uh, and <laughs> and <laughs> really. Um, and so I, uh, I made it home, and... Uh, you know, there were many, there were many, many different stories that I could tell. Um, bottom line is the perils that began was the moment my friend told me that he got sober at the methadone clinic. And that's like super emotional to me because for those of you who've struggled with methadone, it is a um, gripping drug. That stuff reaches down into your soul. And I know heroin does, and I know all these other drugs do, but this one goes into your bones as well and literally encaves itself for six months. But um, bottom line is, is I went up to 240 milligrams over two years at, um, at the clinic. I was taking 240 a day. They were, I say that because <laughs> I know I was taking 240 because they gave me 120 milligram takeouts. I would take them home, be out by Wednesday, buy it off the street, and uh, run out of money each paycheck. Um, my 2008 hit, and I worked in the in a, uh, I don't need to go into detail, but I worked in a department that was literally the department that crashed uh, the industry in 2008. So Bank of New York uh, brought us in, and uh, they were like, we're going to let some people go, and we're going to call you up individually. And, of course, uh, as the speaker was leaving the microphone, she was like, Joey Price will be first if you could just <laughs> meet me over here. Because I, uh, I was horrible. I, made a I had to make amends later to my uh, manager I hadn't spoken to in a long time. Um, I was a bad employee. It's funny, when I made amends to her, she was like, you know what, it's funny, you never were there and stuff, but when you were there, you worked really hard. And I was like, yeah, that's because I was on a ton of Vicodin and uh, opiates, which it did the opposite to me. It gave me energy, uh, made me concentrate. Um, but uh, they let us go, and they 
transferred all our jobs to Pune, India, and when they did, they gave us these cool little um, elephant keychains. And we're like, yeah, this is from Pune. We're transferring your jobs over there. And I had just been let go. It was super awesome. Um, that was in my hand for a second. I threw it away at my desk. I left. And then when I left, I practically, uh, let's just say this. I, my, my parents moved me into Houston with a U-Haul, my dad's 18-foot low-boy trailer. If you don't know what that is, it's just because you're not from Texas. That's okay. Um <laughs> They move me into the apartment. I'm out of money. I've lost everything. My parents picked me up, and we used my mom's Sequoia. I had pawned everything. I needed money. So I made it. My I made my way back home, nodded out on my parents' couch off and on. I, I told my parents I was trying to go down off methadone, and uh, I got an intervention done by my parents. Um, my dad said, you've got to you got to go to rehab in California or you um, or you can't ever see us again. And so I got in my car and I left. I did. I got in my car and I left. And back in high school, which Cody asked me to bring this up, uh, back in high school, um, last kick of my senior year to go to the playoffs was a 49-yard field goal with 10,000 people chanting my name and I missed the kick. That was my stub, by the way. And so I drove straight to that stadium when my parents told me to do that. And I remember at 23 years old, crying for a moment in time at, when I was 18, really 17 and a half, missing a field goal and just saying, if I would have just made that. <laughs> Ridiculous. But that's the type of thinking that was going on in my head, you know? Um, so I uh, turned the car around which my dad owned anyway, turned the car around, uh, went home, and told my parents I'll go to California. Uh, so I went to a place in San Clemente. When I went to that place, um, I remember walking in. This is in 2010. My sobriety date is uh, February 25th, 2010. Oh, first, let's do detox. Of course, right? We're all, for those of you who know methadone, let's do detox. I was in detox for 22 days. Um, Yes, 22 days. Um, it was insane. Uh, I was sick off and on. Uh, it was. I felt like I was going to die numerous times. So I walked down this, uh, and if you know me, I like to get to know people. So there were a few people in detox that were at the treatment center. So I'm walking down the path, and like I said, uh, there's a few people that like erupted and were like, Joey's here, you know, and they run up and they hug me. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm ready to do this. And I ate some prime rib, and then I threw up 40 times that night. Um, the Suboxone had worn off. My heart fell into AFib, and it was beating five times when I breathed out and two times when I breathed in. I had to go to the emergency room, and they defibrillated me. So let's just say this fun trip to California was a little bit different at that point. Um, I was scared half to death. And then when I left there, I was stone cold sober for the first time. And I remember walking up to my case manager and saying, hey, I need you to give me any drug you can possibly give me. That's what I need. And I, he said to me, we're not going to give you anything. And I said, then I'm leaving. And he said, leave. He said, the only thing you have right now is for you to go to your room, 
and pray hard for the first time in your entire life and actually get outside yourself. So at that point, I decided to try to walk out. <laughs> and uh, I didn't, I packed a few things, went late in bed, started crying, rolled over, got on my knees and started praying for the first time. And that kind of kick-started uh, a change, I'd say. Not a really big one at all. Not a big one. Now what? That's not enough, guys. There was no real change there. There was a moment of clarity, probably. That's about it. So I made it through treatment and came into these rooms and didn't listen a whole lot. Um, but whenever I was leaving, a guy named Norm, who taught us everything at IOP, told me, um, you're not going to do this without Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no way that you can make it. And I was like, but I've been to treatment. It's all good. I can just leave. And he's like, no, you don't understand. This is stuck with you for the rest of your life. You need to go to AA. He's like, so when you move into that sober living, I want you to walk up to the guy who ended up being one of my best friends, Brian, right now. And he's one of my sober friends. And I said, Brian, take me to an AA meeting and introduce me to a sponsor because I was one of those guys in treatment that had a temporary sponsor. Um, and so I went into um, went to that first meeting. He introduced me to someone. And that someone um, told me that I needed to go to a meeting every day and to um, start doing this right. He was like, you're meeting me with me once a week. He was like, you're going to meetings for maintenance. You're doing the steps with me to live differently. And I said, okay. Do you want me to call you every day? And he was like, yeah. And so I didn't, of course. Um, I didn't relapse, thank God, but what I did do is learn pain. Um, I mean, there's pain no matter what you do when you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're young and you're trying to make your way into these seats every day and listen to a sponsor and change your thinking. But I went through pain because those coping skills that I should have acquired, I waited on for an extended period of time, about six months, and tried to just squeeze it out in these rooms, and there was a lot of sweating, for me at least. A lot of those feelings were cropping back up. So what he did is he said, you know, we're going to start the steps. So I'm not going to go through every step, but what I will do is tell you that uh, step one was, was, was hard because it was down to my gut I had to make uh, an admission to myself that I had an extreme problem and I was an alcoholic. Step two was interesting as well, because that God that I had prior that I had spent so much of my life devoted to and my family's life devoted to was new. And I had to completely erase it, start over. Uh, now I have a God of my understanding that I understand that there are two things, which this is very important for you if you're a control freak like I am. There's two things in life. There's work and there's results. And let me tell you, I sat in these rooms and I sat with my sponsor many a times and said, I can do the work and control the results every single time. And he would look at me and say, you've lost your mind. <laughs> and he said to me this, which is, I always found <laughs> fairly funny. He said, uh, let's say you go in and you sit 
in a class, you have a test the next day, you spend all night long studying, and you know every single answer on the test the next day. And I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, I can, I've done that before for sure. And he was like, all right. He was like, so let's say that you aced it, but he used the wrong version of the test. The Scantron machine messed up. He actually switched your test with a different one, put a different grade in. He was like, there is space between you and results. You do not have control of those. Those things can happen and will happen. You can tee your life up as beautiful as you want it, but sometimes you're not going to knock it out of the park. You're not going to hit it down the fairway. And I thought to myself, Jesus, what am I in for? So two and three were heavy. But I started praying. I said the prayer, which was awesome. He made me do it in front of my entire men's tag, which was super cool. Um, and I did that, and then I made it to the fourth. Now let me tell you about my personality a little bit. I, I like to talk a lot, and I'm, I, I, as you can tell, I, um, I enjoy talking, and I, I have struggled with boundaries. So let's just say four and five were pretty easy for me because I had told everyone what I've done my entire life through – uh, everywhere I went, down to literally the worst thing you could possibly imagine. So for some of you, four and five might be fairly easy for you. Others, it's going to be a struggle. But let me tell you, it's one of 12 steps. And a lot of people step on it, let's stop on it. And you don't want to do that. You want to push through that. And you want to reach down to the to your gut, and you want to pull everything out and show it to somebody. But like I said, four and five was easy for me. I, I told everyone. Now, let's say the second half of five, going into six and seven, was a little disheartening. I got to see myself a little bit for the first time ever. And I was baffled at what I saw. <laughs> and I was like, oh, dude, I'm going to change. I can't, I'm not going to do this stuff anymore. This is going to be easy. And let me tell you, I didn't. I didn't. It took time. It took time. That seven-step prayer and like, and just and, and just going through it and them saying that now we can move on. There was no moving on for me on that. I've been working on that for nine years. It never stops. It never did. So making amends, moving into the next couple steps was. Um, was really hard on me. Like I said, I pawned everything. And when I say I pawned everything, I pawned my parents' stuff too. Okay. <laughs> so I had to go back. And I remember there was a time where my mom looked at me while I was in the Sequoia halfway faded out. And she was like, hey, she was getting her restroom redone. And she was like, hey. And she started crying. She was like, hey, have you seen my tennis bracelet? I lost it. And now dad told, your dad told me that he's not buying me jewelry ever again because it was so expensive. And I was like, I was like you should have got a lockbox. I was, you know, it was bad. That's who I was then. And so I had to sit with my father on his 300 acres. This was one of the worst. There were many more, but this is the example I like to use. And I, and I told him to stop the mule. 
And this was about right when I got a year. And and he told me to stop the mule. I told him to stop the mule, which is a, uh, by the way, it's a golf cart that's four-wheel drive that you won't see out here in California. It's only in Texas that they have those. Um, and I told him to stop, and I grabbed his leg, and I said, stop. And he said, what? And he said, Dad, I pawned your, ten- your mom's tennis bracelet and your dad's shotgun. And my dad started crying, which I always get kind of teary-eyed at this, so sorry. Um, and he looked at me and he said, you can have all of my belongings that are material to make you the man you are today. Let me just tell you, that crushed me. Not every amends went that way. <laughs> not every amends went that way. It did not go that way. Let's just say I had two, uh, you know, there were some ex-girlfriends. Some that I should never talk to again, but my sponsor said don't talk to them again. Uh, but there were some that I had to make amends to. They did not go that way. Uh, there was definitely some gut-wrenching nights where I had to have phone calls, write letters, and do things like that. And then um, it changed. Um, I was okay with accepting because of what I was doing. I was okay with accepting what pain I had to receive back because I knew what I was doing it for, but at the same time I cared about how I did it not to hurt those people. So there's a fine line there, and I'm not going to tell you I did it perfect every time. I didn't. There's no possible way to. But I needed to trudge through this to be able to start understanding the full circle of the 12 steps. And so um, I do this every day. I sit here every single day and I go through the bullshit that that shit in 6 and 7 makes me go through every single day and I have to make amends immediately and I have to do all these things that are just not fun uh, for you to do, but I do them at the same time so I can have fun and be present. Because let me tell you guys, what my coping mechanism did is made me since made made me go back and made me go forward constantly. I lived everywhere other than in the present. I had no idea. I mean, my friends know I still do that today based on the fact that sometimes you'll talk to me and it looks like you're talking straight through me. Because let me tell you, I'm in like the other room and I'm talking to another person in the back of my head. You know what I mean? And so I I still struggle today. So for for you newcomers this is just an example this is not how it's going to it's not it's not perfect but what i can tell you is sitting in these rooms is maintenance doing the 12 steps and working with a sponsor is you actually starting to live differently that's what it did for me i started to uh, I started to do everything different. So where am I at right now? Guys, that guy that went to rehab was on methadone, stole the tennis bracelet, shit on a driveway. <laughs> that guy 
that guy, I, I'm not perfect. We struggle financially, but I'm married now. I have two kids. And I'm living a completely different life, and it's in these rooms, and it's working this program. So I'm not doing this because I'm, I, I'm not doing this to boast, because like I said, I struggle every single day. I, I was telling Kelly before this, I have two kids under two, and my wife is looking at me, and she's going, she's looking at me, and she's got vomit all over, and she's got her hair up like this, and she's got one on her ankle and the other one in her arm, and I'm like, did you do the dishes? Then I go in the restroom and I practically like want to freak out on myself, like wondering how that moment got me to do that. And then I call my sponsor and he's like, hey, uh, did you, like Kelly said, did you ask if you could maybe do the dishes? <laughs> and so, you know, It, it is simpler. I will tell you that. My life is simpler. It's simple because I have the answers right here, and I'm not like every other person that's out of this room that doesn't have 164 pages to tell them how to live. That's why it's different. That's why it's simpler. It's not, it's not simple. It's not by any means but it's different. And I would choose to do this over and over again, and I'm grateful that I'm an alcoholic. Grateful. Now I check the clock to see if I did it on time. I was close. That would have been a great ending, guys. It would have been marvelous. But I have five more minutes. Uh, <laughs> five more minutes. Huh? So, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I don't like to, well, I don't do it anymore, but I, I met these guys because I got to actually uh, work in, I do this because a, I don't like to mix the two, but in the industry. So I, I have sober livings, but the sober livings were not attached to anything really, you know, gnarly. It was attached to a church and. So I got to work with guys and, and girls and push them into these rooms for a long time. So that helping not only my sponsees, but also helping others became kind of second nature to me for a long period of time. But like I said, I don't like to talk about things that I get paid for. Um, but I got to help a lot of guys that were not part of my job description find new ways of living. And there's nothing like that. Sponsoring guys, walking them through the steps, being able to show them, show what what you have, uh, what you've been through, what many people have been through, and the right path. Because let me tell you, like I said, guys, my dad called me after rehab, and he said to me, "Hey, you can come home now." And I was like, "Yeah, I can." And he was like, "Yeah, you can. Um, it's over. You're fixed." 
And I walked back in and told Norm, who, who all we did was just study the big book whenever I was in outpatient. And I looked at Norm, and he looked back at me, and he was like, Joey, you're never fixed. Never. You never will be. You have the tools, but that's about it. You're never fixed. So I had to call my dad back. And I was like, Dad, I'm not coming home. And he was like, good, I'm sending you all my bill, all your bills. Um, so, guys, the bottom line is, is you're, you, you know, if you're sitting here and you're sweating here and you're uncomfortable, it's because you're supposed to be here. And for those of you who are sitting here comfortably, it's because you're supposed to be helping those who are sweating. And I saw a ton of people walking up here and getting a chip. And that's what I love to see because I also see people taking ridiculous amounts of time in here. And this is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is how we do it, hand in hand. Because you, for you newcomers, that's why they're all sitting here. That's why I'm here. That's it. So if you're in that seat, you're sweating, sit and stir. Don't get up and leave. And that was a better ending. And I'm done. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.